You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, we take a midnight run through our bromance list. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good moves, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam Thomas, and, uh, you know, uh, don't, don't take me to jail. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and I'm looking to break into comedy here as opposed to my serious acting chap days as you probably know from this podcast i'm only on for serious business yeah yep welcome to the double edge shibble bill this week everybody um we are uh, doing something interesting because it's valentine's day week and uh, previously we've done romance movies or then uh, rom-coms uh as we've done previously but uh we decided to uh you know put it up to our patrons over at patreon.com slash pod more on that later, about uh, what we can do for this Valentine's Day to spice things up. And uh, appropriately enough, it's uh, bromances, cinematic bromances, you know, like much like our bromance that's been developing for so many years. Yeah, but ours is like real sort of hot and heavy. I would say lurid. Well, I mean, it's very much an on again, off again, where if it's, is it going to stay a bromance, it's going to go more than that. It's, it's very much a, a real uh, Pam and Jim kind of scenario. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. No, no. But I think it's interesting, especially, you know, it's going to bromance, which, if you're unaware, like, you've heard that term before, it's basically just, like, very affectionate male friendships, especially in, in film. It, it can be, like, a really fun thing to watch, in particular, in, in a movie, where it's just like, oh, these two guys necessarily aren't romantically involved, which isn't a bad thing, obviously. But uh, it's so fun to see them, like, have real affection for each other, even if it's platonic. Yeah, and I'd say the the term bromance, when you say it really took off with, like, sort of the Judd Apatow films. Yeah, I think around that era, particularly, I mean, one of the ones we didn't have as a choice, uh, but could potentially have been chosen, was I Love You, Man, which I think kind of really cemented that as a term. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But, I mean, it's been around forever. I mean, all the way back to, you know, The Odd Couple and things like that. I mean, there's been bromance in films for, fuck, ever. Abbott Costello, for God's sakes. Well, right, I think that's the interesting thing is there's sort of different versions because we could have gone full on, like, comedy duo, which is kind of our our two films of today. Um, Or we could have gone, like, my alternative choice of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is a lot more of, like, trading sort of jokes back and forth, but there's genuinely, like, a unit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, think of, like, all the... You know, the 80s cop movies with the, the partners who want a loose cannon, and uh, that's all the same idea, too. You know, ultimately, they learn to respect and trust each other. I'm basically talking about Lethal Weapon, but I didn't want to say Lethal Weapon. Yeah, the Lethal Weapon was the one that kind of kicked off that kind of buddy cop 
concept for sure. Uh, Shane Black basically created that. But uh, we are here to talk about two specific movies we picked at the end of our last episode. If you're new, every week we talk about a double feature picked at the end of the previous episode. Uh, one movie is ostensibly good, one is bad, depending on our perspectives. Uh, and so uh, this week, uh, we'll be starting with the bad feature, uh, which is... Uh, the bucket list, which was Adam's bad choice, and uh, I had the two good choices last week, and we ended up with Midnight Run. Yeah, I'd say, and uh, both fit the uh, sort of formula we've created very, very well. Yes, yes, they fit firmly in those two spots. So let's uh, get the bad out first with the bucket list. I run hospitals, not health spas. Who the hell is that? Who the hell are you? Oh God, what am I in the Borg? My freshman philosophy professor signed this exercise and called it a bucket list. It's pointless now. We could do this. We should do this. This is living! I hate your rotten guts! Is he insane? Depends. What are you so afraid of? Just because I told you my story does not invite you to be a part of it. Dear Edward, Find the joy in your life. You hate me. Not yet. <laughs> so, uh, The Bucket List came out December 25th, 2007, from uh, director Rob Reiner, and uh, stars two powerhouse talents, uh, Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson, as two uh, older men who have received dire news about their uh, soon-to-be fates, and decide to kind of put you know, their remaining time to good use by ticking off some things, especially for Morgan Freeman. He has not done yet in his life, but secretly Jack Nicholson also ends up getting a few things off his chest as well. And, uh, Adam, your choice. So, uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, alright, let's just cut right to the chase. I watched this movie, uh, like, over the span of two days, and I'm hard-pressed to remember anything about it. It is such a bland bore fest of a movie. I did see this like right around when it came out and I forgot, you know, most of it. But then when we were picking for this sort of list, I was like, oh yeah, those are two really good actors and it's a really good director, but it's got such a bad reputation and I don't remember why I do now. It's so, so boring. Everybody's just sleepwalking through it. Yeah, I remember at the time, this was sort of a big deal in terms of, like, you know, Nicholson was riding off a high because this was right after uh, The Departed. Um, it would end up being his second to last film, because then there was um, How Do You Know, which he did as a favor for another director he had worked with previously, James L. Brooks. And then he stopped making movies. And uh, Morgan Freeman, obviously, this is very much in the middle of, hey, I am fully embracing I am the older black actor who is getting as much work as possible as he would do for at least another solid decade or so after this. And he's still working to some extent. Oh, without a doubt. And the thing is, it's like Nicholson's character in this is not too far removed from Nicholson in real life, it seems. You know, just this sort of rich guy who's got all these faults and everyone's just like, ah, that's how he is. He's playing like sort of a dumbed down version of himself at like when he's front row at the Oscars or at the Lakers games and stuff. It's just he doesn't care. He, he so doesn't give a shit. And, you know, ultimately the movie just sort of becomes like, look at all these cool scenes, like scenery and locations. Yeah, they're at the Taj Mahal. Yeah. Skydive. 
Whoa. Yeah, so some like half like an excuse for them to like go to these locations and half an excuse for them to awkwardly place Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson's heads on CG bodies in that particular case. So jarring and just odd. And then, you know, the, the thing is, too, the Morgan... Okay, so the Morgan Freeman character, you know, he got his girlfriend pregnant at a young age, so he sort of quits school, becomes a mechanic, marries her, does the right thing. He's with this woman his whole life. And it's like, he's on his deathbed. He's going to die within a year. And he kind of just, like, abandons his family to go off and do all these crazy adventures with this stranger. Such a good dude. So many scenes of his wife being so sad over the phone saying, please let my husband come back. Now nah, we're over in Cabo. Sorry, lady. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Wait a minute, dude. And then they get that, you know, the half-ass sort of redemption to Jack at the at the end with his little speech. And you're like, this is so fucking stupid and forced. You know, I, I've bitched about it before on this show. Uh, movies that are s- sort of try to manipulate you emotionally with no real sort of like, they don't earn it. They just, oh, look how sad. Oh, they're dying. Oh. And this is a prime example of that. And, and right away, that just sort of takes me out of the movie. Well, I'll say this much. I actually really was surprised by how much the earlier stuff works, the first sort of act where they're in the hospital. I think that stuff doesn't feel like quite as manipulative as I thought it did initially. Because it feels like, one, Nicholson actually being kind of vulnerable and human in a way he hasn't, he never really did in his, even his older age. I think it's the most vulnerable he's ever kind of been. And then him and Freeman just kind of like finding some kind of humor in the middle of like really dark situation. Once we get to the bucket list stuff is where I think all these issues we're talking about come in. And I'm just like, why don't we just have just like this kind of like weirdly like dramedy about these two kind of trying to get over, you know, their own hangups like in a hospital, I think is so much more interesting than them trying to do their stupid, like, let's cross this bullshit off the list, who cares? Like, if it was just, like, kind of more intimate, like, sort of character-focused drama, I think it'd be much better. Oh, absolutely. Because you would, you know, care. Because <laughs> I completely agree. That That's the part, yeah, Nicholson's really good in the, in the opening. Like you said, he's showing a really good sort of vulnerability. You know, Morgan Freeman, he's always a reliable. Yeah. But, um... I don't care. Especially when, like, Morgan Freeman ends up doing all this for Jack Nicholson. It becomes this other weird thing of, like, Morgan Freeman's done this plenty of times, especially for, like, Clint Eastwood of, hey, I'm going to be the helpful black friend to this white guy. And in this very much case, I'm going to be the helpful black friend to this guy I met in the hospital on my deathbed to, like, help him out and completely ignore my family while I'm doing it. Completely leave them out. Completely bail on your family. When you're about to die, you don't even let them be around you until you're, like, basically dead. I don't know. It's so against the fir- the original version of the character to where it takes such a dirty and just stupid turn that, like I said, I find myself really not giving a shit anymore. It, it, it's it's kind of... It, it was just the wrong decision to make. It was the wrong decision. Now, if they would have done something to where, like, you know, even he insists that his son comes along, too, or something. And he gets to share these experiences with his son as well or whatever. That that would have been all right. Still stupid, but at least there would have been a little bit more sort of growth to the the origin of the character. As opposed to, like, oh, yeah, he's a really good family man. But he wants to go to Mount Everest. So, so you're like, it's just so fucking stupid. I will say Sean Hayes is actually pretty good in this. 
he's a bit better, yeah, than he usually is for me. Um, yeah. in, in other movies, as sort of like the Smithers to Jack Nicholson's Mister Burton's. Um, I think they have a a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, if anything else, I. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Yeah, I've grasped at straws here. Man. You mentioned Rob Reiner, who we've never talked about on the show, like one of his movies. Uh, the, the main sort of weird thing is the weird trajectory of that dude's career, because like that guy started off with one of the best runs I've ever like seen a director have. Where this is like his first few movies. So this is Spinal Tap, first movie right out the gate. Then the Sure Thing which is an underrated little comedy I like, but uh, then Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men. Like, you started the gate with that many, like, bangers. And you're just like, oh my god, this dude's, like, never gonna stop. Then North, admittingly, which, to be fair, North at least is distinctively bad. Like, we're grasping at straws for the bucket list. We could talk forever about North. We might in the future at some point. Um... And then um, after that, The American President, a very, like, cute little movie that works. But then after that, I think it's just a bunch of movies like The Bucket List. They're just kind of forgettable, milk toast, bland movies. Like, Ghosts of Mississippi, Story of Us, Alex and Emma, Rumor Has It, the LBJ movie starring Woody Harrelson from a couple of years ago. Shit that just, like, no one remembers exist. I honestly didn't even realize that he did that LBJ movie. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, weird. It's got to be because of North. I hate to say it, but North was such a colossal failure, both critically and financially, to where it, I, it seems like it might have just set him in a downward spiral that he's never sort of bounced back from. I think also it's a bit of like he peaked far too early and far too consistently. <laughs> I think it's just like it, he yeah. really front-loaded his directorial career. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. I mean, like you said, those are some real bangers. Because this one... You know, this one has had the makings on paper of being something pretty special. It could have been. It's just, it, it's so sort of, like you said it best, it, you said it's very like milk toast. It, it really is. It's bland. It's boring. It's kind of formulaic and paint by the numbers, but in a way that goes against sort of a lot of the character archetypes that are established in the first 20 minutes. Like, I, the thing is, it, these two guys are going through this, you know, going through cancer that you both got a year to live in. that's awful it's tragic it's it's sad it's whatever and i get trying to make it like you know look at they still you still always have time to sort of achieve your dreams and you know make you know timed for things to work and blah 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 but you the whole time you're watching you just it it doesn't matter because a nicholson doesn't really have a character he's just rich and kind of a prick and morgan freeman like i said he, he abandons his family but the whole time you know the the cancer and the ultimate end is looming which is fine but it takes sort of the absurd moments and just it, it takes the punch out of what's supposed to be exciting or fun because yeah, i don't care like yeah I, I just don't care it's just sort of like let's have excuses for us to put Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson in these scenarios. Like, there's that, yeah. or there's, like, the weird race car sequence where Morgan Freeman, like, tries to murder Jack Nicholson, technically, or he's just like, I'm gonna kill you, and just rams his car into him. It's just, what is, yep. what are we doing? What's this tonal nightmare that's happening? These two were dying, right? Yeah, I thought, you, you thought so, and by that, that too. Uh, realistically, these two dudes are in the hospital because they're, they have extreme cancer that they're going to die from 
half of the shit they do in this movie, they wouldn't survive. Yeah, I love that it's not until, like, like he's just sitting down at a restaurant that Morgan Freeman has, like, an emergency issue with, like, the catheter. He's like, oh, that's what it took? Just you sitting down <laughs> with Nicholson in France at a right. fucking fancy restaurant? Right, but the race car, the jumping out of the plane, or none of that really affected you. No, you were fine. At all. You were fine before that. <laughs> yeah, totally fine. Totally, totally fine. Uh, it, it's just, like I said, man, it, it, the formula is there for... For this to at least been something competent, but it's just, it's such a misfire on almost every level. If it wasn't for the first 20 to 30 minutes, this, I mean, this would just be almost unwatchable. Yeah, there's a few moments I do want to highlight from that first bit, like especially the bit with Jack Nicholson and the glasses when he's like laying down yes. and you he's told the news and you just see the like lenses reflect the eyes. Stuff like that, which is like, oh, wow, this seems like an interesting directorial decision. After that, it's such a blandly shot movie. Like, oh, we're in front of the Taj Mahal, and it looks so cheap. Like, I can't distinguish, like, is this real? Or is this, like, a fucking blue screen bullshit? Completely agree with you. Completely agree. And and sometimes in set pieces, it's from one shot to the next. Right. We're like, oh, they're really there. Oh, wait, I don't know. They look super proposed. Oh, wait, maybe they're not. It's it's really, like I said, it's so jarring that the use of any sort of special effects in this movie is just not done well. It's really not done well. It takes a lot, any sort of believability out of it right away. Yeah, it, it's pretty poorly implemented. But yeah, it just all feels like this sort of saccharine empty kind of exercise down to i knew this movie ended with the john mayer song say ever the end credits because i remember that the last time i watched this i did not know that was written for this movie and that makes this go from like oh this is a bad movie to like a war crime that you are responsible <laughs> for that fucking song existing like, I can't emphasize enough how much... I hate John Mayer in general, but Say is, like, one of the most yeah. garbage songs. Like, uh, when it came up, as I was watching this, I kind of held back vomit a bit. Because I hate that fucking song. Ooh. It is, like, such a vapid, awful piece of shit song. <laughs> yeah, it's... Well, it comes from a vapid, awful piece of shit person. But it's the um, worst one. And that's saying a lot. <laughs> that is saying a lot. But I, I don't think I can disagree with you. And it, it, Correct me if I'm wrong, that was also his biggest hit yep his biggest single especially in the u.s charts just really tapping because it's because it's like thanks it, rob reiner i think it's also the big reason why like this movie even did so well where it's like obviously because of the actors involved but it's like 45 million dollar budget made 175 million dollars because like it's so baseline premise just like oh it's jack nicholson morgan freeman hanging out with each other and they're t- ticking off stuff on your bucket list a very relatable idea of like oh we want to like do some things before we die especially even near the end yeah. and it, it's nothing more than that premise. Like, I remember seeing the trailers when this first coming out. You know, Jack Duke did Morgan Freeman, and they're skydiving and doing silly shit. You know, directed by Rob Reiner. You're like, oh, fuck, this could be really sort of cute and charming and, and funny. But then you realize that's all the movie is. It's just Jack Duke and Morgan Freeman hanging out. Kind of maybe directed by Rob Reiner, maybe directed by the AD, and Rob Reiner was sleeping. I have no idea. But yeah, it, it's so just... The whole thing is one note. I mean, it truly, truly is. Yeah. Any sort of, like I said, any sort of emotional response or care and consideration that they want you to put into the characters or attachment, it just doesn't happen. It's not there. Yeah, like even Jack Nicholson's whole thing with his daughter is so, like, 
push to Ugh. the side of the side of the side of the side of the frame. <laughs> like, it doesn't even fucking... We don't even get any kind of that meaty conflict that could be there. Or even, like, when Morgan Freeman comes back, everyone's just like, well, at least you're here and we all can have dinner together, including your kids, most of which have not been seen until this particular scene in the movie. Yep, and then, you know... Spoiler alert, at Morgan Freeman's funeral, Jack Nicholson gives this fucking speech and it shows his whole family. Morgan Freeman's family sort of looking at him with these sort of like loving eyes and looks. Bullshit. You took him away from us in the last couple of months we would have had with him. Like, they're not going to be like, oh. you know, he saved my life. Like, oh, good. <laughs> good. Thanks. It's just, it's, yeah, it's fucking lame. It's lame and you're a lame-o for watching it. Yeah, and who's the lame-o that recommended it for the show? Rob Reiner. <laughs> I talked to him on the phone. <laughs> you know, Adam, I think you'll really love talking about the bucket list. It's a good pick, right? You have the good ones? Yep. Hey, Ted Cruz is a piece of shit. He's a fucking piece of shit. You should watch the bucket list. <laughs> Rob, I agree with the first part, but I know about that second part. I think you're yeah, starting to talk about the crazy. second part, man. Yeah, <laughs> take it easy, buddy. <laughs> um, but do you have any final thoughts you can muster about the bucket list? <laughs> I Like I said, it's just a bland, ultimately incredibly forgettable experience, and it's a shame that it's, you know, to date Jack Nicholson's last starring role. But, you know, as you see a lot of times with these sort of titans of acting, usually their last roles are sort of really lousy. I mean, i.e. welcome to Mooseport with Gene Hackman. You're like, oh, no, Gene. But it's just, unfortunately, that's the way it sort of goes. Like, I, I hope maybe, I don't know, man, if Jack's got anything left in him. But Morgan Freeman, you know, he's still going. It's just, I don't know. Like I said, it's boring. It's bland has all the sort of the bones of something that could be really fun and cute and endearing. And it just, there's no meat to it at all. I heard a story about him being offered something in his retirement to come back. And he called back, you know, I thought about doing it and it sounded pretty good, but then I realized I was sitting in a hammock and I was drinking out of a coconut. I think I prefer doing that. <laughs> he put his all into something like The Departed right before this, which is like easily like one of his best performances, and it's his last really great one. Then he got a check from his buddies Rob Reiner and James L. Brooks, and then he fucked off. Add respect for that. Yeah. Oh, I do too. I completely do too. I'd do the same damn thing. Yeah, and then I'd spend the rest of my days being like a weird goblin at Lakers game. Sure, I would do that. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, but yeah, I, I generally agree. It's it's definitely such a bland, forgettable one. This it's one of those, like I said, that like we we've talked about many times. Whenever we do like a bland bad movie, where even though I've seen this movie twice now, I'm gonna forget about most of the details of this until like, and you might forget it too. It's just like, oh, what, what about the bucket list? Why did everyone hate that? Oh yeah, because I watched it six months ago and it was bad. <laughs> forgettable. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's one of those things, despite a good premise, despite some interesting things. To, to tell you exactly how much effort was put in, uh, screenwriter Justin Zackham apparently uh, finished the script in two weeks. It feels like it. Yep, that makes sense. Really, really feels like it. But we're going to talk about a much better bromance movie in just a moment. But first, here is an ad for an ESO she can queue up right after ours. Howdy! Listen up. I am talking! Now, the question of the hour is, who's got a Doctor Who podcast? Answer, we do. Next question, who's listening to it? Answer, 
You are. If you're sitting up there in your silly little spaceship and you've got any plans to listen to a Doctor Who podcast, just remember who's standing in your way. And then, do the smart thing. Listen to Earth Station Who right here on the ESO Network. All right, let's get into Midnight Run. I love to travel by train. Oh, yeah? What do you think this is, a class trip? A tough ex-cop. Are you always this angry? A sensitive criminal. Oh, no, no, come on, come on. Cigarettes are killers. Why are we running away from the FBI? Because I got to bring it back myself, otherwise I won't get my money. They're seeing America the hard way. What did you do before you did this? What qualified you for this? Robert De Niro. It is truly in your best interest to just relax. Charles Grodin. I'm totally relaxed. From the director of Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run. So Midnight Run came out uh, July 20th, 1988. Pretty interesting perspective into Robert De Niro's career, who we talked about many times on the show. Uh, but this is sort of, I would say, his first big comedy role. He had done movies that kind of flirted with comedy, like King of Comedy, even though it's much more of like a dark, satirical dramedy of sorts. Uh, this is his first sort of big comedy part, and he'd wanted to do a comedy around this point. And so uh, he ended up getting with Martin Brest, who at this time was coming off the success of uh, Beverly Hills Cop, and uh, ended up teaming up with Charles Grodin of all people, for this comedy where uh, Robert De Niro plays a former cop who's now, like, a bounty hunter for bail bondsmen, and he's off to find the Duke, who's Charles Grodin's character, who's an accountant that managed to siphon a lot of money from a big-time gangster who De Niro has a history with, and uh, the Duke and him end up uh, going cross-country after a bunch of shenanigans take place, and, uh, yeah, it's sort of about a, like, begrudging romance of sorts that uh, builds up between the two. And uh, I think this movie still is quite funny, quite entertaining, quite endearing. Um, but, uh, Adam, do you agree? Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. The chemistry between De Niro and Grodin is, is real palpable. Grodin fucking just almost makes me piss my pants at the whole movie, just his delivery and it's, it's just the dryness to him. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's such a good, good movie. And, it, I mean, it's just populated by so many character actors i mean joey pants dennis farina yafit kodo i mean it's on and on and on uh the only th- my only problem with this movie in all honesty is the score it's so loud and bombastic so often to where it it, it sort of like drains my senses <laughs> a little bit that's interesting especially given it's it's an early score from danny elfman uh-huh yeah, I know. It's just, I, it's too much, I don't know, man, it's too much trumpet or too much saxophone or some shit. I don't know. Well, I mean, to be, I think uh, this is him kind of transitioning out of doing, like, a couple big Tim Burton scores to start off with. Just like, oh, I can kind of transition that into doing a cop score. <laughs> yeah, I, you're right, exactly. And and that's sort of maybe where the disjointedness uh, of it comes in for me. Uh, it's not ultimately distracting, it's more annoying. But other than that, I mean, I absolutely think this is just a phenomenal movie. It, it's it's not outright a straight up comedy. Like it's not like joke after joke after joke after joke, but sort of the, just the absurdity of the situations they find themselves involved in. And like I said, Charles Grodin's back and forth with De Niro is just pure gold. It's so well done and well written. And a lot of it was improvised. And I mean, and you can't tell it's almost seamless. It's so, so good. 
Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting dynamic between those two, where, like, this is, like I said, De Niro trying comedy real hard. You can see a lot of, the, like, what's developing later that he would, I would argue, kind of, like, ran to the ground by the time you get into, like, the Meet the Parents sequels and some even other recent things he's done, um, where, like, his comedy persona is very much just exasperated De Niro, which in, like, a Scorsese movie, is, like, intense and, like, oh, my God, is this guy gonna murder me? And it's like, oh, man, this guy's gonna murder me. How silly. <laughs> like, he plays on that a lot more in a way that I think is, like, really fun in this movie, especially when you consider, like, it's this, you know, he plays this, like, bounty hunter who's, like, lost so much, and he feels like he's kind of, like, disheveled despite being like, oh, hey, I'm in control of the situation. It's like, but you've lost a lot. <laughs> like, you're you're in a losing end of the spectrum as well, um, as opposed to the Duke, who is, like, so much more together as, like, an accountant. But I think that makes, like, his sort of comedic beats all the funnier. Particularly the beat where um, his credit card has gotten canceled. And um, he's trying to, like, say, please do yeah. it again. And Charles Gordon keeps having these great fucking looks on his face. Just, like, oh, the best, like, can you believe it? I'm so sorry. <laughs> In the middle of all this bullshit. It's so good. Looking at the clerk and shaking his head. Like, I know. I know. I it's, I know. He's so fucking funny to me, Charles Grodin, in this movie. That just the way he constantly, constantly, constantly is trying to get De Niro to open up. And at first, you know, you think maybe he's doing it just to be a prick. And I, I do believe that's the case. But, you know, as the movie goes on, the movie goes on, I'd say pretty much by the time after they leave uh, De Niro's ex's house, you can tell he's generally like, what's going on with you? Like, what happened? Like, he really does want to know. And it's, it's, it's so well done in that way um, because there's not really much of a tonal shift. It's just in sort of the inflection and it's so, so well done and funny. And you end up really sort of rooting for these guys to become friends. Yeah. I think it's a lot of credit to, even though I know a lot of those stuff, the sort of individual scenes were sort of improvised to some extent. Uh, George Gallo's script, I think does such a great job of especially like getting you invested in the scenario that's going on here where it's a really great setup of just like you got to do cross country trip for like a bounty and you've got like the mob, but also the FBI on your tail. And it's, it, that's what makes, I think such a big, particularly like hit at the time, but also a consistent, like huge cable movie and home video movie at the time. And I think it's, it's because like, it's such an ingenious like conceit that it doesn't stop with the conceit, like the bucket list It actually develops that conceit a lot further and it kind of gets you invested in the bromance because you're like Charles Grin where like you want to know what's up with him but also it's just like you want to figure like how does like an accountant steal 15 million dollars and give it all to charity is this guy just a goody two shoes or like what's a bit more developed from either side of that coin and I think they do such a great job like bouncing off each other where they're kind of being sarcastic and assholish and as it goes along just like oh but they have like a lot more endearing quality by the time they're like on the train I think it's where that bromance fully cements with stuff just like maybe looking at one of those chickens like there's fun bits that just like yeah. really get you endeared to the two of them as they gradually grow more endeared to each other yeah yeah that's a good line yeah the, you know you ever had sex with an animal jack <laughs> there's some good looking chickens there yeah I'm, i might have looked twice at one of them <laughs> you know it's just really sort of the absurdity of the question sort of just disarms it because you got to figure they've been fighting the whole train ride because, you know, Groen tried to leave him and <laughs> not let him in the train and he got in and he handcuffed him and all this shit, which by the way, the lead up to them getting on that train, the Groen's little con that he pulls at the bar. Oh, so good. <laughs> is so funny and good. The way he's eye fucking 
the, the, the bar uh, the bartender and the owner and that old man that's sitting there looking at him like you sons of bitches like it's so good it's so well done and they both look like shit they're both filthy unshaven and yet still just the full commitment to the sort of the cod it's so well done and funny um it's, it's really all in the I stance really... in particular from Groden. Like, he's very straight-laced yeah. up, up top. I, I like how they contrast between the way he impersonates an FBI agent and the way De Niro impersonates, where it's just like, yeah, we have an FBI agent, come on, let's go, let's go. Like, he's trying, like, I don't have time for you kind of thing. Like, it's just, just like, yeah. how different their chemistry is, which I think is so key, because this is a Universal movie. It was originally a Paramount movie. And Paramount was really gung-ho about, like, no, not Groden, we have to get a star or, like, an up-and-coming talent. To where they were like either Robin Williams was supposed to play that part, then at a certain point it was Bruce Willis, and then at a certain point they were like, "Well, let's change it to get sex appeal to a lady. Let's have Cher do it." For like, and none of those three would have worked, like at all. Off of Denier. No, I agree. And originally, I remember too. If correct me if I'm wrong, but they wanted Chevy Chase and um, I forget who for the, the for the uh, Robert De Niro part, but that was originally who they had sort of the script was optioned originally with those two attached to it. And then once it got turned around, that's when they sort of changed gears. I mean, Chase would have um, probably been the closest to like something similar to this, but you wouldn't have gotten nearly as emotionally invested. You would have just had the like, sort of like stuff up, stuck up prick kind of angle. Yeah. And the thing is, Groden does both in this movie and he does them both really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, that whole con scene is fucking fantastic. When he tries to steal the plane, it's so funny. <laughs> I didn't I think mean, it was relevant to tell you at the time. Yeah, yeah, you lied to me. You lied to me first. Well, you didn't know I lied to you, so technically you lied to me first. <laughs> that old thing. And I love John Ashton in this as Marvin. He's constantly getting screwed out of the money, too. Or, or of course, Dennis Farina as the distant kind of villain who I think is so perfect. Like anytime he shows up and it's just like, Hey, idiot number one, let me talk to idiot number two, please on the phone and shit like that. So funny. And he is so good in it too. And he, you like at the, the end in the airplane, the shit he's saying to fucking De Niro, you're like, Oh, just shoot him. Yep. Just shoot him. He's such a piece of shit. And also, yeah, Yafet Kodo is also such an intimidating presence at the same time. And then once we get to that point, he's just like, oh, God, I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm going to have a heart attack before this is all over. Yeah, and he he's really, really intimidating in it. Yeah. Uh, but he's so funny. The whole sunglasses bit is it, so, so good. <laughs> yeah, well, De Niro, that's, I think, the point where De Niro starts being so fucking funny is when he puts on the glasses and just looks at everybody. He doesn't say anything. <laughs> he just wants to be included yeah. on the sunglasses bit. <laughs> Yeah, and then when he steals the cop car, he leaves the sunglasses on the dashboard. <laughs> you know, so it's a little joke between me and Alonso. <laughs> like, it's really, really good. Oh, and, and uh, by the way, I figured out it was supposed to be Harrison Ford and Chevy Chase. Yeah, that... Mm-hmm. No, I don't think that would have worked. Cause Harrison Ford would have been too much of a straight man, and Chevy would have been too much of an asshole. It would not nearly have worked. No, I agree. They, there would have been no sort of... Um, likability to either character mm-hmm. and I, I do but again to bring him up i love joey pants in this movie oh god we haven't even talked about joey pants how funny is in this movie <laughs> he's so fucking funny in this movie how excited he gets all the time jack you son of a bitch you got him and then 
What do you mean? You had it for four days. <laughs> it's so fucking good. And I love how like distinctive that shitty bail bonds office looks like it looks so perfectly shitty. And it, he matches cause like his awful attire and his terrible comb over just like, Oh, this is so oh, perfect. So gross. <laughs> it's so gross. And that wherever that little Chinese restaurant he keeps eating is in, like, it looks like it's in the right, right in the middle of a market. It fits that character so well. Where like that to him is the height of dining. And I love that also he's just like, call me at the Chinese restaurant in like 10 minutes. And then he just zooms over. And he's just like, it's for me, it's for me, it's for me. And they start talking. And especially how he like starts screaming about like that, all the money. And meanwhile, like all the people in the shopping center are like walking by. I know, I know. And I love, you know, I had a contract right now with them, a contract. Really? You, you signed a contract? Yeah, there goes a hundred thousand dollars. A hundred? He told me twenty-five. <laughs> like, you know, it's so good. <laughs> and the thing is, Marvin, while he is kind, of, he's a despicable piece of shit, but he's also like you kind of like him too, because he's not outright evil. He's just a bondsman. He's a bounty hunter who wants to get a big payday. He's not. Like he doesn't try to kill anybody or anything. Yeah, there's a roguishness that kind of fits him and De Niro, where they feel like it's just, hey man, we're we're gonna be doing this. Um, and it's I I would say honestly for me, like I I think that comedy works so well that my biggest points were I don't check out totally, but I just think like it becomes a serviceable mm-hmm. action movie, like when the action set pieces start. I think aside from also like the helicopter car chase, I think most of them are just yeah. like, oh, this is fine. That's like an action set piece, nothing incredibly memorable but i just want to get back to the comedy i I agree but they do a pretty good job of not lingering on it too long i'd say the helicopter scene is the sort of the longest one but even the the shootout at the bus station it it wraps up pretty quick with them escaping and taking the cop car and stuff like that yeah i just think i think it's more of a problem something like beverly hills cop from martin breast who speaking of directors and weird careers this one's fascinating where so you got like goldman style is his first big movie um, which is like the elderly sort of heist movie. But then Beverly Hills Cop, which was originally designed, obviously, not to be an Eddie Murphy vehicle. It was a Sylvester Stallone movie. Yes. And then very oh. quickly was, like, tied up to be like, hey, let's have Eddie Murphy just do a bunch of riffing in between, like, big sort of heisty sequences. Then Midnight Run, and then Scent of a Woman, the movie that got Al Pacino's Oscar. Then Meet Joe Black, which is sort of like an infamous sort of, like, big high profile bomb but then like okay we'll give you another chance that other chance was geely which was even worse an example of a bomb and the man has never been heard from since well <laughs> i think geely probably solidified that because i i hate to say it i find meet joe black fascinating right uh basically just the story idea alone i think is, is pretty fascinating i think brad pitt does some pretty interesting shit in that movie too uh geely is just god awful i mean that's one of the worst movies ever made for with for a good reason uh but yeah you know but also you know if you do a little bit of research about this film or any of his other films he's he's i guess can be kind of a cantankerous sort of uh perfectionist martin breast yeah apparently he did a lot of takes especially on this movie and made this kind of experience of making this movie in particular kind of miserable which is so weird because like you don't feel it in the movie it's like such no. a perfectly constructed fun movie if i if memory serves i think charles groan and yafit koto both said it's the hardest movie they ever made 
Mm-hmm. That's true. Down so, to the point where apparently Groden still five. has like the scars from the handcuffs. They were like really tight on him. Yeah, because uh, De Niro insisted on using real handcuffs instead of the ones with sort of padding in the middle because he's such a fucking method actor or whatever the hell. Which I'm all for method acting, but if you're putting other people in harm's way, like, eh, maybe take it easy. But yeah, no, I think this is just a pure fun, fun film. And like I said, you know, it's crazy seeing Dennis Farina in 1986 or whenever this movie was released and then seeing Dennis Farina in something like, oh, I don't know, Get Shorty or, you know, Snatch. And the guy didn't miss a beat, man. He's just as good then as he was near the end of his career. That's how good of a character actor Dennis Farina was. I mean, he was perfect. And talk about a guy who could blend sort of the comedic sort of aspect to that mob mafioso character and handle it expertly. I, I mean, that's Dennis Farina all over the place. Well, I think that's a big thing with this movie is it feels like it's kind of like really hones in on a lot of like the comedic personas of the, of the actors that would like continue from here. Like even a Joey Pants, I think that's very much the case. Or De Niro, I would say very much the case. Where like after this point, like I said, De Niro would do a lot of comedy work in between doing like some serious stuff. And I think like what is missing from some of those is so perfect here is that De Niro is like playing a comedic character, but the character doesn't feel like he's in on the joke. He's very much sort of right. like he'll he'll joke around, but he when he's the butt of the joke, he is like mostly not willing to like believe it until maybe like once they're on the train. But even then that's just like to endear you more after that point. Yeah, it's almost like a all right, I give up sort of thing too, you know, with De Niro, like, all right, I'm just going to let my guard down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also dude, my, one of my favorite bits in this is, uh, anything with Farina and Philip Baker Hall. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I advise you against it. Stu, shut the fuck up and have a cream soda. Everything will work out. <laughs> you know, get a cola and a goddamn sandwich. Do fucking something for once. It's just so good. He's such a prick. It's so fucking good. And I ultimately, the smartness of the sort of even con to capture Farina at the end is so well done and believable, Mm -hmm. even though I doubt any of that would probably actually fly, but it's so well constructed and you're like, you're totally on board. Yeah. Even when you're watching, dude, dude, give him the discs. Just give him the fucking discs. Right. You're right there with, like, your fit Kodo when De Niro's, like, putting it down. Like, now he'll get uh, hit for extortion, right? And he's like, yes. Yes, he will. <laughs> he's writing that shit down. <laughs> but also, I think, it, even though, like, we're talking about, like, the ingeniousness of sort of, like, the comedy and even, like, some of the, like, uh, sort of cop, uh, you know, chase elements. Also, I think the emotional stuff on the page really works. Like, even the scene where De Niro, like, encounters his ex-wife on the road. And especially when he sees his daughter there. I think hit just the perfect emotional note where it's not like it's a huge shouting match kind of thing, but it has that authentic kind of line of sadness, especially the point when his daughter comes back out, like here's my babysitting money. If you need like, no honey, I'm not taking that. Yes. And one thing that I, you know, I really do like is that you could tell he cares about his ex-wife and he does care about his daughter, but he doesn't let his guard down in front of Groden at all. He doesn't say, I love you to his daughter. None of that shit. It's just a wave by and he's gone. I mean, he doesn't take the money, which is great, which is a great sort of character. I don't know if trait of his where, I mean, they're in the shit, man. They need every dime they could possibly get and he won't take the money. I mean, I thought that was pretty cool because ultimately he's not a fucking piece of shit. He doesn't take bribes. He doesn't want to take things from people. And you know, that's 
ultimately what led to his sort of uh, downfall of his relationship. And his career uh, as a cop. And his career as a cop. Because he wouldn't take the bribes from Farina back in the day, you know, and he got framed or whatever. And it it's really good, and they don't drop it for a second. Even to the end, where, you know, spoiler alert, he decides to let Groan go, and Groan, you know, gives him the money belt. And he even tells him, he's like, this isn't a bribe, it's not a payoff, it's a gift. Well, especially because he's like, you already let me go. Yeah, you already let me go, so this isn't a payoff, this is a gift. And you're like, aww. That's so cute. <laughs> he has that one recurring thing. It's just like, I want to open up a coffee shop with like the money I get from turning you in. It's like, it's something so simple and they don't like really dwell on it, which is like, I want to have a nice cafe where anybody can come. Oh, it's Bobby De Niro's coffee yeah. shop. They just like, they yeah, keep it as a runner right. as a thing. It's just like, it's a good solid motivation. They doesn't want to be a cop anymore because the system's corrupt. But he also doesn't want to be a shitty bounty hunter. Right. Exactly. He's tired of dealing with sort of, the criminal element and everything he wants out of that lifestyle. I, but I love that scene where he tells Groen what he wants to do and Groen just takes the piss out of him immediately. You know, as an accountant, I got to tell you, that's a very horrible idea. You know, most businesses fail in the first six months. Most restaurants <laughs> fail in the first six months. Yeah, most restaurants fail in the first six months. I love even how they like later bring that back when they're at the dining car and he like tries to leave a tip. And he's just like, you, that's like 10%. Like these people live on tips. <laughs> I know. And I love the very subtlety of, you know, as an accountant, as an accountant, as an accountant. And then near the end, it's as your accountant. Yes. You know, where he's sort of, he's basically saying, like, I care about you. You are my friend. And how beautiful is it, too, about, like, at the at the very end, when De Niro, like, looks back and he's gone? Yes. Perfect. Yes. I am so glad, too. Because I, I, it would have been terrible for it to be, like, a turnaround and then another wave scene or, or a hug. Or something like that. I, I'm so glad it just ended the way it did. You know, the De Niro, you got changed for a thousand? What are you, fucking comedian? <laughs> All right, looks like I'm walking. And then that's it. End of the movie. It's so well done. Yeah, even though it's weird that apparently, I didn't know this until doing research for this episode, they made a bunch of straight-to-TV sequels to this in specifically 1994. What? I know, I did not know. Like, apparently, in 1994... Three in a row made for TV Ooh. sequels to this came out, where it was Jack Walsh is now played by Christopher McDonald. Shoot, wait, sh- Shooter McGavin. Shooter McGavin, yes. Um, and he oh, and he like God. takes three different bounties from um Eddie, who's now played by Dan Hedaya. Uh, okay, well that one I can kind of see, to be honest. True, yeah. That doesn't bother me as much, but Shooter McGavin, what in the fuck? Oh, I don't even think I could. I don't. Ooh, I don't even want to see those. Oh, I bet those are train wrecks. And like, I, I get the temptation just because it's like, oh, Jack Walsh seems like he would be perfect for like a show about like, hey, each week I take a bond or whatever. But at the same time, like, there's no point because like this is the perfect story. It had to take place post this story. Well, no, pre, pre this, this story. story. Yeah, pre this story. Yeah, because if it takes place after this story, then you're just fucking ruining the whole arc of the character. Yeah. Ugh. I bet it's something like his coffee shop failed, and now he's got to go back to the life. Bum, 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 bum. Or I wouldn't be surprised if they just Ugh. completely ignore that. <laughs> but it's just so weird. Like, so even if it's priest, so it's like okay, so Christopher Do- McDonald mutated into Robert De Niro, like he lost several feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and he's clearly not Italian. Um, I, and you know, the other thing too, I, I, I remember De Niro wanting to remake this movie for a. While, 
uh, with his production company, and it just never got traction, which is probably for the best, to be honest. Yeah, I don't see quite anybody else, like, making this work. Like, gun to your head, if you had to do a remake to this, like, now, oh, who could you shit. possibly cast? Oh, shit, man. I... Uh, <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> You know who actually might be pretty good, and I, I hate to say it, but he as as at least the Grodin character, Will Ferrell, Stranger Than Fiction type of Will Ferrell and stuff, or even um, Steve Carell. I could see someone like that who can do serious work, but they have more of a comedic tint because you have to change it a little bit in order to make it even worth doing. Um, as far as the De Niro character, I have fucking zero idea. This feels like a movie that would have come out about like five years ago and would have been like. Probably Kevin Hart and Will Ferrell. But Get Hard probably happened and that made it not a thing. If Get Hard was successful enough, they would have probably fucking done that. That's pretty accurate. That's, that's probably exactly the type of people it would be. Or Ice Cube and Kevin Hart. <laughs> right, the, the unofficial Whoa. ride-along three. Yeah, basically. Oh, God. Just leave it alone, though. This is one of those where you don't need to remake because it's, yeah, it's, you know, obviously it takes place in the 80s just because of the technology that's being used and the locales and stuff, but it's still pretty timeless. Like, this story doesn't need to be retold in a modern setting. It really doesn't. No, because it would be a lot less sort of, like, tension-filled, especially, like, any bits where it's like, oh, hey, we can't communicate and we have to, like, send a wire over or bullshit like that. Like, no, that would be completely resolved in, like, 2021. <laughs> Instantly. Yeah, but even the idea of him, like, just having a man in handcuffs on a random place and nobody questioning it or clearly brandishing a gun. Like, you know, that, none of that could happen now. No, or even, like, Charles Grodin freaking out on the plane would not be easy resolved. Like, well, you gotta go on a train now, boys. Like, that would not happen. Yeah. Or, I don't know, the Mafia, which right. basically doesn't exist in this form anymore. Yeah. So it would have to be, like, Colombian drug lords or something, which, oh, God. Yeah, no, just don't remake this. Leave it as is. Well, uh, those sound like pretty good starts to final thoughts at and final thoughts on Midnight Run. Uh, you know, I hadn't seen this in years and years and years. Like you said, it was such a staple of cable television uh, when I was growing up that, you know, I've seen it quite a few times, but I it just I sort of forgot about it. And it faded a little bit from memory until you picked it for this. So it, this was a real treat to sort of watch again and be able to pick up on a lot of things I never noticed before. or Some of the jokes that didn't land for me because I was younger. Um, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. Like I said, if it wasn't for the score, this would be easily one of my top films we've done for the show. And would you say it fits perfectly as a good bromance? Oh, without a doubt, yeah, especially because it's like a budding one. Like, it's it's not right off the bat. These two literally hate each other. And then they sort of, because of the situation, have to become friends. So, I mean, it's a bromance slash, I mean, basically a romance, friendship, whatever you want to call it, in every sense of the word, and, and it blossoming. And it's handled really, really well. They, they still, you know, even at the end, are sort of reluctant friends in a way. It's not, at the end, they're not hugging each other and, like, you know, oh, I love you, man, and everything. It's like a mutual, like, all right, you go your way, I go mine. You know, thank you, thank you. And it's done. But they'll always remember that wonderful trip they had across country. Yeah, because it gives them the watch, too. <laughs> <laughs> watch. Very true, very true. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. I don't have much to add, um, except, especially if, like, you're somebody who, like, 
has grown up a bit more re- with recent De Niro in your head, and it's a lot more of like, oh, how did the like Martin Scorsese beloved collaborator become the war with Grandpa guy? <laughs> um, I would definitely uh, recommend like watching this one in particular because it's it has all of his great comedic traits, but also he doesn't like overbear it from like a Groton who he works perfectly off of. This is a really great movie. I'd definitely recommend if you've never seen it before. If it's one of those you kind of heard of but never seen, it's uh, it's a real joy and a, a real bromantic affair. But uh, that's the end of our discussion of our two films. We'll be picking our films for next week at the end, so stay tuned for that. But first, we have some feedback to read, because every Monday, we ask you all about, like, hey, where are the good or bad, sort of favorite, least favorite movies related to whatever topic we're doing for you guys. So we asked you all about bromances, and we got a couple people, uh, you know, responding here, including uh, friends of the show, James Rodriguez, who says... Uh, Nothing says friendship like traveling through time to ensure your friendship remains intact, and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure wonderfully has that. Just wish this didn't have casual homophobic slurs on it. Uh, Shane Black excels in those areas of bromance, particularly with Lethal Weapon uh, between Danny Danny Glover and the anti-Semitic guy. Uh, But I want to highlight the nice guys. The pairing of Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling makes for comedy gold and has me wishing they could have been in more adventures together. As for worst, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I never got past the feeling that Cameron was being manipulated by his friend, and Matthew Broderick playing a spug prick didn't really help things. Uh, And then Christian Alvarez says, Bromances have been a big part of movies for ages, and we've had some great ones and some stinkers. Examples of bad bromances would be The Rock and Vin Diesel in the Fast and Furious movies, since their real-life hatred for each other was so public during the last movie. It's obvious they're not friends. And of course, Johnny and Mark in the room, because everyone betrayed Johnny. Positive examples are Paul Newman and Robert Redford, uh, whether in Butch Casting the Sundance Kid or The Sting. Almost everyone in Lord of the Rings movies like Gimli and Legolas, Frodo and Sam, or Merry and Pippin. Sylvester Sloan and Kurt Russell in Tango and Cash are great. The greatest romance of all is Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, whether it's throughout the Cornetto trilogy, Any Adventures of Tintin, or even that C-3PO R2-D2 sketch they did for YouTube. You believe those two are genuinely best friends and have a chemistry that works every time they're together. Yeah, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost was when I was tempted to do uh, one of the Cornettos, especially like uh, Hot Fuzz is a favorite film of mine. I, I think it's like such a perfect, like bouncing off each other. And I like how in those movies they kind of... Like, the first two have a very similar relationship, but even in um, At the World's End, they switch off. Because in that one, uh, Nick Frost is more the put-together guy, and Simon Pegg's kind of, like, the more pathetic guy. But they do it without missing beat. They play either part perfectly in those three movies. Oh, yeah. No, I absolutely agree. Yeah, Hot Fuzz is my favorite of the three as well. I I think it's just pitch perfect action comedy. If you want to see a good action comedy, there you go. Because the action is thrilling and exciting, but the comedy just doesn't let up the whole time. It's so fucking good Mm -hmm. and well shot and everything. That's such a perfect sort of send up of those sort of 80s cop movies we were mentioning earlier, like Tango Cash and Lethal Weapon and all that. And I know that apparently Nick Frost was like, apparently a waiter that Simon Pegg knew from, like, his early acting days. So that chemistry is genuine. Oh, yeah, they've known each other for a long time. I mean, space, everything, you know. And as far as Ferris Bueller's Day Off goes, that was a real favorite of mine as a kid. Um, I absolutely loved that movie. Um, And the reason I loved it is why I can't watch it anymore. (laughs) Because of uh, Jeffrey Jones. I just can't watch the movie. Right. But... Man, was he, he just was the funniest guy I've ever seen in my life in that movie. And he, he just got the shit kicked out of him. It's, it, it's so, so funny. 
I, I mean, I would argue that's why, unlike some other Jeffrey Jones movies, that one holds up a bit more just because he's constantly getting his ass kicked. It's a bit more weird where it's like Beetlejuice and he's like, oh, hey, he's everybody's favorite goofy yuppie dads. It's like, yeah, not, not quite. Not yeah, that's quite. true. Yeah, that's that's a good point. But, but how do you feel about like maybe the that relationship that James is talking about with Bueller and Cameron? I think that's absolutely the case. I think James hit it right on the head. And I think that's sort of the point of Cameron's character to where by the end he's like, fuck you, fuck my dad, fuck everybody. I'm going to start standing up for myself. Yeah, Ferris is a he's a shitty friend. He's a, he takes advantage of his friend the whole movie until the very end, where his friend's like, "Enough is enough." Ferris Bueller takes advantage of everyone in that movie, mm-hmm. he except for his girlfriend. I mean, he's constantly conning everyone, from his parents to the people at the restaurant to, you know, the car guys, everything. Uh, that's just his character. He's a sniveling prick. Yeah, he's one of those guys who definitely peaks in high school and only talks about like this day. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, and, and we've talked, you know, sort of off mic about the Bill and Ted movies. I I do still have fond of remembrance of the first one. I haven't seen it in a long time, but when I was a kid, it was like the funniest fucking movie to me. It's so cool. I was not a fan of either of the sequels at all. I mean, to the point to where the third one was right near is right near the top of my worst film of the year uh, that I've seen. I, I just really dislike it. You know, I get, I get the first one. I, I do get the sort of the homophobic slur angle where people, you know, oh, you know, I just wish it didn't have that. Well, it's not an excuse, but unfortunately, that's when you go back and watch movies from that time period. And it was so commonplace then that you kind of just got to look past those things, you know, and still try to enjoy the movie for what it is. I mean, I think it's like more an issue. Like you can acknowledge it like, oh, that doesn't hold up very well, but then kind of embrace yeah, like what no, does work fine. about the movie. Yeah. Yeah, don't let my. I guess what I'm saying is, I know some people that'll let that stuff ruin the movie for them. If they, if it does, I get it. But at the same time, I I never bought into that too much. Anything else? I think in those movies, it feels more like, oh, these are two dumb high school kids who don't know much better than to say like stupid shit like that. That's the point. They're idiots. Right. They're a bunch of morons. Right. Apparently, Reeves and Alex Winter are actually very good friends in real life. So I think that's what feeds in, like, their chemistry, where even if you aren't a fan of, like, the sequels, you can admit, like, their chemistry doesn't feel inauthentic. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You could tell they're, they're fucking, they're down to clown with each other anytime. Yeah. Like, they totally love being silly together. You can absolutely see it. You know, and another one I wanted to bring up that we've already covered for the show, but one of my favorite sort of bromance action movies that we've already covered is uh, Point Break. Yes. I love it. I love it. And that's one of my favorites of that. I do like the Lethal Weapon movies, despite, you know, Mel Gibson. They're still fun movies. I, I could still sort of get into them. I, I agree with James' assessment of, like, the Lethal Weapon uh, sort of thing being carried over with Shane Black's The Nice Guys, which was criminally yes. underseen. Criminally underseen and underrated. That yeah. is such a fantastic movie. It is so, so good. I absolutely love that movie. A couple other of my favorites. I love Men at Work with Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez. Mm-hmm. I, I something about that movie just kills me every time I see it. It's so bad, but it's charming in a weird way. You know, and another one I want to I want to mention that I'm sure people know the movie. Well, maybe not. It's it's one of those that came out when I was a kid, and I thought it was the funniest thing. And I've seen it recently. And I still laugh at a lot of the things for different reasons as real men with uh, John Ritter and Belushi. 
it's so ludicrous and stupid but hilarious uh, i mean there's aliens the fbi it, it's just it's so dumb but it's so funny and you know you got to figure also like spies like us and 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 things like that i mean there's so many good examples of this genre um i i'd say more good than bad examples that i can that come to mind other yeah. than the bucket list right like i i would i one i was not even aware of that movie you're referring to with ritter and i'm guessing you mean jim belushi right yes oh yeah, okay yeah, yeah. not john like oh wait there's some lost john belushi movie i'm not aware of yeah, yeah, the not as funny one. Right, um, uh, but I mean, in terms of like ones for me, I would say to, like we've talked about previously on the show. One of my favorites that kind of fits weirdly with Midnight Run, just in terms of like the cross country kind of angle of it. Planes, trains, and automobiles. I think it's a phenomenal oh, example yeah. that really works. And like the thing is, even like with stuff that doesn't work, it tends to be more of like the movies where like the whole premise is more toxic as opposed to like say a couple bad lines. Like I would say Wedding Crashers. Like that was such oh. a big deal at that time Jeff, and i think it holds up terribly <laughs> i gotta be honest when i first saw it i i laughed at the shit that was happening to vince vaughn like him getting shot and you know how crazy is the fisher was with him and everything and him getting tackled and stuff like that i, I thought that was kind of funny but even then though i that movie is just really problematic and it was problematic from the time it came out mm-hmm. yeah a lot of comedies from around that time don't hold up nearly as as well as you would think as opposed to actually i did rewatch i love you man just because i hadn't seen it since the theater or i remember being like all right this is fine and rewatching it it's actually a lot more like sweet and endearing and positive than you would expect because it just talks about something that isn't really talked about that much in movies which is just hey adult male friendships are hard to keep and when you find one, you want to, like, kind of yeah. treasure it. Despite that, like, Siegel and Rudd play so well off each other in that movie. And it's one of those where you can tell there's obviously some improvisation, like the Apatow period, but it still feels like a movie. It has the cute yes. kind of, like, rom-com structure. Just, like, there are a lot of great scenes with, like, Rashida Jones and Paul Rudd. Like, oh, is he calling back? It's like, oh, we're just going to go to dinner. It's fine. <laughs> like, oh, slap, slap into base. Slap into base. <laughs> yes. And the whole Rush thing. Yeah. Oh, dude. You too, Jobin. What? He called him Jobin. <laughs> There's so many great points of Paul Rudd just like realizing, what the fuck did I say? Like he's he so like nervous about this idea of like having this male friend. Um, and it's so weird too. Siegel was a guy where like I was really endeared to him from like you know knocked up and forgetting Sarah Marshall. Like oh my god, this guy's interesting. And he really disappeared. <laughs> yeah, he's he's probably, he's got that one movie that's either out or coming out. With, right, uh, Casey Affleck. And, and Dakota Johnson or whatever. Yeah, I, I, he's done a lot of that stuff recently, like independent comedies. Well, no more dramas. He's he went hard into drama, right. which feels so weird for that dude. Like, no offense, but he's just like so massively tall <laughs> that I just like I can't I see you having like serious relationships with people on camera. <laughs> it just feels so weird. I mean, at all. He did a full crying breakup scene with a donger out. I can't take that guy serious, dude. True. As hard as I try, I just can't do it. But he was able to work but with yeah. the Muppets after that, so who knows? Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Oh, God, that Dracula musical. Oh, God. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so fucking funny. But uh, I, I'm a real big fan of the, the sort of subgenre as a whole. Like I said, I'm hard-pressed to really think of a lot of really bad ones. Uh but I'm always excited to see sort of a new one. You know, oh, speaking of J.C., like Jeff, who lives at home, that was pretty lousy. Yes. 
Well, of course, because what's his name? I can't stand him. Oh, Ed Helms, you're not a fan of? Yeah, you know, he's so vanilla and one note for me. Like, he's the same in everything he does. He's one of those guys where he worked really well as a supporting character on, like, The Office, or even in other things where he'd yes. pop up. He's a really good supporting actor, but every time he's tried to be, like, either a co-lead or a lead straight out, it just kind of reminds you, like, oh, yeah, there's not much to him. As like a, to him, right? No, unfortunately. Um, and even then on The Office, they, like, really ran that into the ground. That was the worst part of, like, the last couple seasons, was how much of an asshole he was to Ellie Kemper. Like, that's why I can't really rewatch that show, especially going all the way full. No, I, I, I agree. And the thing is, too, it was a bad idea to, to sort of give him center stage anyways, because he had all these movie projects going, so he just wouldn't be on the show for, like, a five to six episode stretch. Yeah, like, he left, like, a boating or whatever when his girlfriend needed him yeah. or some shit, like, whatever the fuck. Yeah. Yeah, and he'd come back and be awful, Ugh. you know, try to steal his job back and stuff. Like, it's just... it. Yeah, I agree. We also had a bit of feedback in reference to um, our a previous episode we did, speaking of comedies, in reference to our stand-up comedian vehicles episode. Uh, Bill L. had this to submit, where uh, we talked about prop comics, given Carrot Top was the star of Chairman of the Board. And uh, Bill L. says, I don't think I've ever seen Carrot Top, and everything I've heard has been negative, so I can't imagine why it's impossible to have much of a positive reaction to prop comedy when you can't really get away from Carrot Top in your mind. But what about Joel Hodgson as Joel Robinson on MST3K? During the host segments, he, and uh, for that matter, the Mads, would come up with a bunch of very inventive, even literally prop comedy in the middle of the invention exchanges. Um, I, I don't know what uh, Joel was like as a prop comic on stage, uh, but it did help, at least in the show, to see him do some one-offs and only a few bits with the, you know, doing the invention exchanges. Um, it would be really fun to see him and the bots interact off of that. And But maybe it's really good he moved off of that to another format. And I, you know, this was one I was thinking of when I was editing the show that I didn't even think of, of, like, Hodgson. And even then, like, I'll say that I, I love MST3K, though the invention exchanges are kind of part of why Joel isn't my favorite of the hosts. I agree. Yeah, Mike's my favorite. Right, because Mike kind of, like, dropped that angle of it and focused more on, like, when the host segments would pop up just having, like, weird character beats for all of them to do. Yes. Um, but I'll say at the same time that, like, I don't think that prop comedy, without that, he would have been able to make, like, the incredibly endearing homemade designs of, like, all the different robots on that show. Oh, yeah, no, without a doubt. You know, and I, I've never even really considered him to be a prop comic, but I guess at its at its core, yeah, that's what he was. So yeah, good call on that, Bill. Yeah, and I think I've seen some of like his stand-up where he would do prop comedy. I think what works about him doing that is Joel is so like lackadaisical about it. Like he doesn't feel like Carrot Top where he's trying to impress you with the props. It's just still like, oh hey, look here's this here's this weird thing I made up out of like trash or whatever. Yeah, he's real dry. Yes, he's not a redheaded freak show. <laughs> you can't stop looking at. Like Carrot Top is a is a redheaded car crash. I, I, it's horrible, but I can't stop looking at it for some reason. I saw his first set he apparently ever did without props in it, which was like only a couple of years ago. Yeah, he did a set. It was like filmed for like some Comedy Central show where they just have, I don't know what that show is called, but you can see the clips online where it's like everybody's performing at this one specific bar and they're all like in the middle. It's like a strip club kind of thing with like two poles, but they like, they don't actually. Oh, I know what you're talking about. It's on Netflix now. It's, I think it's literally just called Stand Up. Yeah, it, it's, it's a bit more intimate. Yeah. I've seen some people do it well. Carrot Top did one, and it was just like, oh, okay, this is why you have props. Yeah, 
Because yeah, I'm trying to be like awful. sort of a bit more up, like naked and off the cuff does not feel <laughs> like it works. But I don't know that dude. That dude's at the God. fucking what? What's the one hotel in Vegas? It's like where the pyramid is. The is it the Luxor? I, I believe it's, the, it's Luxor. the Luxor. Yeah, he's been performing there for like he's the headliner comedian there, and he's been for ages. I know, dude. He's worth a ton of money because of yes. that. Yes, he, I think I think his contract's like a mil a year or something like that, and then he gets free living. Yeah, like he lives at the hotel. I mean, good on him, dude, I guess. Uh, you know, I'm good without it. But but then, I mean, wouldn't you consider sort of, I know it's different, but in a way it's not because they're still using a prop like the ventriloquist comedians. I mean, I would consider ventriloquism a bit different in that I do agree that like there is technically a prop that's there, but there's also like a adding Skill puppetry. Level. You asked the wrong person, by the way, like is puppetry prop comedy? Yeah. So like, excuse me, sir, allow me to elaborate. <laughs> Well, no, but my, I mean, my fucking muppet a, yes like that's not the <laughs> there is a certain skill level involved too i mean yeah having being able to sort of throw your voice i guess is a little bit more than just pulling some random fucking dog shit out of a trunk and be like oh this is funny look man on to the next one i think that's why it's more offensive to me that somebody like a jeff dunham is so successful at it because oh, he's oh. not a very good ventriloquist or comedian no he's terrible at both yeah awful i oh don't get me started on dunham don't get me started on don't, i don't dunham. think he's done too many films i think what was he's in that one with paul red and steve crow was it the dinner for schmucks i believe he's in that's the only film yes. i can think of that he's in which is a terrible film by the way not a very good movie. I, i've heard as much i only literally know of it because the trailer had jeff dunham and i'm like oh ew no <laughs> oh thank you sir yeah. that's enough for me <laughs> i would pass on this <laughs> Um, but thank you all for that feedback, all of you. And of course, we also want to thank some other people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And thanks to our loyal patrons over at patreon.com slash pod, where, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you guys get to pick stuff like topics we do for the show or individual, like movies we cover. And actually, all of you patrons, um, this week, we're going to need your help. Because um, along with, uh, you know, the bonus podcasts we do, we'll be doing one in February for top 10 robot movies, top 10 robots in TV and film. So stay tuned for that. But also, uh, we're doing something special in March. We're doing a March Madness bracket about the best movie villains. And uh, there are a total of 32 slots, most of which we filled up between Adam, myself, and our various uh, cohorts that are going to be involved in that episode. Uh, you'll, it's going to be a pretty interesting experience. But um, we left two slots open because each of us took six, so we only have 30 of 32 slots filled. And we need those other two slots to be filled by you edgelord patrons out there. We're going to have a post up asking you all for like, hey, what movie villains that aren't on this bracket that we'll show you? Like, what are we missing? What do the two slots need to be filled? We need your help with that. Yeah. Just help us out. Go go crazy off the cuff if you want. doesn't matter. Whatever gets the most votes, that's going to go in. Yeah. And it'll be fun to talk about. It'll be fun to see where you guys are coming from. A lot of the obvious ones are in there, so um, you can pick, like, maybe some ones that we missed. It's just, I like, can't believe why would we miss this, or even just a few that, like, you know, aren't nearly as appreciated. And we'll definitely pick two of them. We'll definitely create you on that episode. Yes. Absolutely. For sure. Now, Adam, uh, we got to ask people to, like, follow us on social medias and stuff. We got to ask them to follow us on Pod on both Twitter and Facebook. That's where we ask you all about those feelers. Like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite things related to whatever topic we do? And you can email us feedback, even, at uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. 
And, uh, you know, if you don't maybe have uh, the consistent funds of a Patreon supporter, uh, you could just back it all down on a something you can buy over at the Tee Public store. You can buy a coffee cup or a t-shirt, a mask, anything like that, with our logo on it. That helps. It gets us a bit of a kickback. Yeah, I have a little money. I'd like a lot more. That's where you people come in. <laughs> Such a good sales pitch. Like, I have some money. I could always use some more, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's true. But yeah, buy some shit. Buy my shit. Buy my shit. I'll always love a good critic reference. God, dude, I love critics. I love the critics so much. Oh, yes, for sure, for sure. But um, if you want more of our individual antics, you can find us on social medias like uh, I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd as at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com where you can read uh, some, you know, movie writing I do, including I put up recently a post about some movies I saw at Sundance, uh, which includes, we, we talked about Edgar Wright earlier, uh, the Edgar Wright uh, documentary The Sparks Brothers, uh, the Jared Carmichael directorial debut of On the Count of Three, and the spooky horror movie The Blazing World. Ooh, interesting. Well, where can we find interesting stuff from you, Adam? Oh, I wouldn't say anything I, I do is interesting, but I'm, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam, A T O M underscore or underscore A D A M. Once in a while, I'll post a cryptic tweet, sometimes not so cryptic, a lot of pictures of paintings I've done. And, uh, you know, I will share uh, any of your guys' stuff. Go ahead and send me a friend request on Instagram. I'll accept it. Uh, I am a glutton for uh, punishment and numbers. Yes, and for more of our uh, gluttony, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not listen to all the other great shows there? Or uh, you can dig into our archives for a bunch of episodes we posted even before we were on ESO on our Podbean channel. And if nothing else, you know, if you can't support us by buying some merch or contributing to the Patreon, we would appreciate it if you just rate, reviewed, or shared the show around to give us more visibility, because that's absolutely free. Yeah, you know, like how I just said I would do it for you people? Fucking return the favor. Fucking sheep. You're all sheep. Wake up. Yeah, so please continue to be sheep. And subscribe to us. Yeah. Join the sheep. And subscribe to share our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But now, Adam, we gotta do our picking for next week. And uh, next week we decide, you know, this actor just appeared in a recent movie. Except the little things. And also, it's Black History Month. So we decide, let's cover... Uh, a black figure in film we've been wanting to do since, I'd say, the start. Uh, we're going to do an episode, yeah. finally, about Mr. Denzel Washington, one of the great movie stars still uh, working today. Oh, yeah. What, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I put Denzel right up there as far as, like, one of the greatest American actors uh, of all time, especially because uh, not only does he have that sort of movie star status, guy's got some fucking chops, too. Yeah. He's actually one of those uh, good actors the kids talk about. You heard about this Denzel yep. kid? He might be going places. Well, we'll see. We'll see. But, uh, Adam, you at least are going to see the positive side of it because you have the two good movies for that episode. I have the two bad movies. And so uh, you've assigned them between 1 and 10 for your choices. Done the same for mine. So we're going to pick them between 1 and 10 for each other's choices. And that gets us the one good and one bad film we cover in the, the following week's episode. So, for your two good choices, Adam... I'm going to go with number nine. All right. So at number 10, I have a movie 
that a lot of people think is, eh, it's okay. I happen to think it's one of the better action movies of the last decade. Uh, I think it's super, super fun. Uh, I picked the first Equalizer. Okay, I've never seen the first Equalizer, actually. That's interesting. Okay. I think it's super, super fun and underrated. Okay. Um, and then at number one, I had, I mean, I guess it kind of goes without saying, I had Training Day. Of course. The, the movie you won his Best Actor Oscar for. Yep, both directed by the same guy. Right, Anton Fuqua. Yeah. Yep. All right, so now uh, for my two bad choices, Adam. I'll go number two. Okay, so at number three, I had a movie um, I haven't seen fully, but I've heard so many fun things about how terrible this one is. Um, from the 90s, it's a movie he did uh, with uh, a rising star at the time, Mr. Russell Crowe. It's Virtuosity. <laughs> I fucking knew it. I knew this was going to be your choice, and I am super excited to talk about Virtuosity. Uh, loved it when I was a kid. It's atrocious now, but <laughs> oh yeah. It at least sounds like a more fun bad movie than the bucket list, right? Oh god, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. There, there will be quite a, quite a many things to discuss about Virtuosity. Yes, well, at the other opposite end of this, at number seven, I had uh, one that he did with uh, his collaborator many times over. Um, I had the remake he did of The Taking of Pal 123, starring your favorite, John Travolta. Oh, 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 I gotta lie down. I'm so crisis averted. <laughs> oh. Oh, well, so that'll be very interesting. Virtuosity and The Equalizer. That'll be a lot of fun to talk about Denzel next time. But until then, Adam, I gotta take you in. Or maybe I won't, as long as you give me that belt full of money. Uh, well, can we go to the Taj Mahal? Or a warehouse with a green screen? I'll treat you to a beautiful green screen dinner. Oh, wonderful. Good night, everybody. Bye! has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.